Hey, it's Katie, and I'm here to help you befriend your mind, body, and soul. If you stick around with me long enough, you might find that you're a mindful soul too. Hi, hi, hi. I'm so happy you're here with me. Today we're diving into a topic that I feel like is becoming more and more relevant. We're going to be talking about coping with community disasters and collective trauma. This episode was actually another listener's suggestion when I initially launched the podcast. It was actually a friend who suggested this topic as she's someone who lives on Maui and she'd just gone through the experience with the Lahaina fires that destroyed a whole community there. And I really feel like this episode is based on the backdrop of what feels like an increase in disasters lately. I mean, we're living in a post-pandemic, politically polarized, inflation-gouged, recession-ridden, late-stage capitalist society, which is gobbling up and polluting all the world's resources. We've got wars, systemic racism, prejudice, income inequality, shrinking middle class, blah. People are freaked out about the future. It's really understandable. Many religions out there are predicting the end times, and I'm really mindful of the fact that fear about the end of the world is nothing new for humans. But more so than any other time in history, we have access to the news of the entire world's traumas all at once. It is overwhelming. All you have to do is look around for two seconds and you get this sense of burned out, hopeless fear from people or angry attempts to try to change others. It's really understandable. There's a lot of pain and suffering out there. And I think the people who are maybe not experiencing those things are just really, really putting their heads in the sand as deeply as they can because it is so painful. They don't know how to look at it, right? So As someone who I studied social work, crisis intervention, and trauma recovery, I have often wished that everyone got a little training in these things because it's so prevalent in the world. So first I wanted to give a little background to my career and time that I've spent working within this area before sharing a framework and some tips for coping with collective trauma and community disasters. So In my career as a therapist and a licensed social worker, I've carried roles where I'm responding to community crises. I've done de-escalation work with people, completing safety assessments. I've also worked in community disaster responses. Where I live here in California, we have wildfires that sweep through our communities every couple of years. And so where I live in Napa, there have been multiple years where for weeks you have friends and family evacuated, toxic smoke covers the sky for months, and you can't go outside, you have to wear masks. In fact, in 2020, there was a fire and we were, it was like being double masked, right, for both COVID and the smoke. And, you know, People who have homes or businesses are burning down during those times here in my community. And so I've worked in the evacuation centers. Responding to community disasters and collective trauma requires a specific trained response. There's no doubt about it. There are things that help and things that don't help. So obviously, this podcast isn't a training or a certification for disaster response, but I think that as the world faces more and more challenges, 
we all benefit from having at least some understanding of both how to cope and how to support others through these times. And a huge part of this is having more patience with each other. So I actually want to separate this episode into two sections. Part one, we're going to discuss coping when you're directly impacted by the disaster or the trauma. So that is, you or your loved one's safety was placed at risk, you lost loved ones or property, you're in or one step away from the disaster, okay? And then for part two, we'll talk about when you're witnessing from afar. So this is what I refer to as collective trauma. We see it happening on the news. We're shocked. We're angry. We're scared. We don't know what to do. This is a different kind of coping. There's some similarities, but it's a little different. So before we get into those two parts, it's helpful to actually define trauma, which is an emotional response to an experience in which the safety of you or someone you care about is threatened. Now, this is broad, and I think it's important to highlight that everyone responds to disasters and traumatic events differently, depending on their inner, outer resources their biological nervous system capacity to return to a baseline after processing a traumatic event. One thing I want to say here is that stressful events can be traumatic, but not all stress is traumatic. So I want to make sure that we don't broaden the definition of trauma so far that people are like saying that they're being traumatized by the traffic on their way to work, right? <laughs> so there's a difference between daily stressors that we face and trauma. When we talk about safety being threatened as a core part of trauma, that can include emotional or physical safety. So this includes forms of emotional, physical, or sexual violence. Even things like job loss can threaten our sense of safety because, you know, we need money to eat and have shelter. All of this lies on a spectrum. And here's the thing. Even witnessing trauma happening to people we don't know can be traumatic. Trauma can also be understood as nervous system overwhelm. So this means our nervous system, our survival activation energy, which I'll talk more about in part one, it gets flooded to the point where a person struggles to function or to return to baseline over time. The most extreme example of this might be when someone receives an actual diagnosis of something like post-traumatic stress disorder. This is, in short, a situation where someone's experience of trauma has impacted them so greatly that they struggle to function in major life roles. So they have triggering thoughts and memories of the trauma that continue to evoke anxiety and panic or interrupt their sleep. And this is all built into the nervous system, right? We're going to talk more about how our nervous system is wired to keep us alive. Another aspect of trauma is a sense of powerlessness or helplessness. This is where we have the concept of being victimized by something. Something happens to you that you didn't expect, you didn't choose, and you couldn't stop or control. And here's a little caution. I always encourage people to be really mindful when talking about getting out of victim mentality. 
Because the truth is many people on this planet have very much been victims of all kinds of horrendous and unfair circumstances. And the journey of healing after such traumas, including generational traumas, is not as easy as pull yourself up by your bootstraps or just stop being a victim. (laughs) If only it were that simple. There is a therapeutic process that often needs to happen. It requires learning a skill set for re-regulating the nervous system and from there creating a survivor identity rather than being stuck in recurring cycles of being in this activated state of panic and being frozen or feeling helpless. So when we talk about collective trauma, fun fact, humans are hardwired to feel empathy for others. We have special neurons in our brain called mirror neurons, which activate when we see others distressed. Those neurons create a similar sense of distress within ourselves. And of course, this is a survival mechanism for a social, tribal, clan-based species in which we depend on each other to survive. So empathy and feeling another's pain serves the purpose of activating us to help. Now, of course, this mechanism can become unhelpful if we don't have a skill set for managing our empathetic responses effectively. And we'll get more into that when we talk about scenario two, where we are witnessing collective trauma. So the last thing I want to share about trauma and disasters before we dive in is actually something that I think is really cool. It's the Chinese definition of crisis. So the Chinese symbol for crisis is actually two symbols. Obviously, I can't show an image here because it's a podcast, but the first symbol means a time of danger. And the second symbol means a time of opportunity. And I think that's really important here because coping with disasters or trauma within communities requires this coming together and eventually an ability to identify as a survivor, having come out changed forever, but also having found the resilience to continue. So there has to be a level of empowerment that happens for people eventually. And note, this is not always available to people or possible right away. Which is why I mentioned earlier, we really have to start with more patience for each other in these moments. Okay, so let's dive in to part one and discuss coping when you're directly impacted by the disaster or trauma. And carrying on from our definition of trauma, when something disastrous occurs, there's often this initial response of shock or denial. The brain is literally trying to process and comprehend something that has overwhelmed the nervous system and it seems incomprehensible. We have to acknowledge and validate both for ourselves and others the normal response of possibly being stuck in shock or a high emotional distress for a while. This is where our automatic survival response kicks in. It's a part of our autonomic or sympathetic nervous system, often referred to as our fight or flight response. You've probably heard that if you've ever taken a psychology 101 course. Um, It's an automatic flood of chemicals which activates our survival energy in the body. You may or may not know that there's actually more than just the fight or flight responses. 
There's also a tend and befriend, also known as a fawn response, where one tries to befriend the danger or reduce the threat. So think about when you see a dog or an animal, when they're really scared, sometimes they might roll over on their back and show their belly. And it's kind of this sign of vulnerability, like, don't hurt me, I'm a friend. So sometimes that's that tend and befriend or fawn response when our safety is threatened. It's like, okay, how do we make nice with the others or the potential harm so that it's less intense? There's also a freeze response that some people go into where we can't move or think clearly. You know, this is also protective. If there's danger in the forest, maybe if we hold real still and we get real quiet, the danger will pass us by. And so our brain is automatically activating into these survival responses. We don't get to choose them, but freeze is another one that can happen. Some people also go into what's called a fold response, which usually is actually the highest level of activation energy in the nervous system. And this is where someone might actually pass out or lose consciousness or completely sort of give up in a situation. And this response is actually a very merciful part of our nervous system, which is trying to save us the distress of pain. People might disassociate or sort of lose connection with a sense of reality for a period of time. Again, really normal activations that happen in people when they're confronted with a disaster or trauma. So when people are in this activated crisis response, this is where having a trained professional there to support can be really helpful. The goal, of course, is to help people get out of the initial activation response, which can take some time. And it's really important here to normalize and validate the whole spectrum of responses because everyone is so unique. So you might ask, why can some people go into like superhero mode and (laughs) take care of business? in the midst of a disaster and not have a panic or frozen or fold response. So think of like first responders or even, you know, military individuals who have to go into these high pressure, dangerous situations and like get the job done. Some people are naturally more inclined to kick into action mode. And this can also be trained. However, oftentimes you will still see these individuals struggle long-term to come back to baseline once the threat is over and they return to regular life. So it's kind of like in the moment, the pressure kicks in, the nervous system goes into pure focus mode, take care of business, which can be very useful in that moment. But then eventually that activation energy tries to come back down and sometimes it's still stuck on high. So over time, processing and talking about the experience can be helpful to some people. This helps the brain sort of acclimate to this new reality. What happened? And desensitize to it. So the more we kind of repeat a memory The more we think about it, the less triggering it can become. Um, And we start to adjust to the fact that, wow, this disaster or this community, this trauma actually happened. This process of talking about the trauma, it does need to occur with a licensed therapist if possible. 
because people also need to learn a skill set for experiencing the uncomfortable emotions that can come up when processing memories of what happened. So just talking about trauma and what happened without being fully prepared can actually cause more harm for many. And that's why a lot of people kind of say, well, I just don't want to talk about it. Let me not talk about it. Um, because it is painful to remember. And so this is where working with a therapist to build your coping tools for experiencing those emotions, regulating those emotions so that you can desensitize to those memories that can be helpful. Another aspect of helping people get through a community disaster is establishing a sense of agency, that they can do something. Many people find themselves wanting to stay busy and distracted during times of great loss or disaster. You know, you'll see people clean their house from top to bottom or go out and volunteer and help other community members. Taking action in whatever ways are possible can combat this sense of helplessness and build resiliency. Because remember, being frozen in helplessness long term is one aspect that can be an indicator for whether or not someone goes on to develop something like post-traumatic stress disorder. Oftentimes, when communities go through disasters, you see them come together in ways that weren't happening before. There's this sense of collaboration and mutual aid. I like to think of recovering from community disasters very much like the stages of grief. So if you're familiar with those, when we go through a grief process in no specific order, there's shock, denial, numbness, anger, depression, hopelessness, and then eventually comes this searching for meaning and ways to survive and move forward. Eventually, there can be bursts of energy and hopefulness, and the ultimate goal after any trauma, grief, or loss is an eventual acceptance of the facts of this new reality. Acceptance of a new reality, this is really important, is not saying that it was okay or excusable at all. It's simply accepting that it did, in fact, happen. Things have changed forever and will never go back to exactly what they were before, which is really the nature of life in general, right? So when we get stuck in grief, or even things like post-traumatic stress disorder, a large aspect of healing is acceptance, regaining a sense of agency and empowerment, as well as eventually desensitizing to the memories of the trauma, so that recalling and remembering those traumas or disasters don't continue to evoke that same panic, anger, helpless emotions in the present when that experience is already gone. Let's move into part two now for when you're not part of the community disaster or trauma directly, but you're witnessing it from afar. When we see it happening on the news, we see community members going through something that's not directly impacting us. This is collective trauma, which can still impact us because remember, empathy is a natural and important thing. And when we are overwhelmed, even by secondhand trauma, we can also become incapacitated or even overreactive, and then we're no help to others, right? So, disclaimer here. 
First things first, I want to acknowledge that our capacity as individuals to give back to the world and contribute to the collective, whether that be to donate financial resources, volunteer, teach, support, offer compassion and empathy, our capacity ebbs and flows. There's times when we are all simply doing our best to keep our own heads above the water emotionally in our own lives. Yes, even if our lives are very privileged and we don't face the direct impacts of things like war, famine, or systemic inequities like racism. As I mentioned earlier, each person's nervous system capacity is highly subjective to their own biology and genetics. Generational trauma is a thing. It's subjective to their own life experiences, as well as their own emotional coping skills, how well they're able to cope with stressful or traumatic events. So no human is immune to having their nervous system be overwhelmed by life, which is why it's so valuable for each of us to do our own learning of ways to tend to our mental and emotional well-being, right? So I want to use an example that I briefly mentioned earlier for coping with collective trauma. Therapists and, you know, social workers or even disaster responders They're trained in their schooling for how to manage their own emotional capacity while they're exposed to a lot of other people's trauma in their work. So therapists are taught about something called vicarious traumatization, which happens when someone hears traumatic story after traumatic story, it can result in their own nervous system being overwhelmed. And this can then lead to the same feeling of powerlessness or helplessness. You know, what can I do about this? Nothing. It's, it's too much. It's too much for me to handle. And so it's a known fact. There's decades of research that witnessing and hearing about others' traumas can become traumatizing if we don't have a skill set to navigate this with. It goes back to empathy and feeling others' pain. And the solution is not to shut our empathy off completely and stick our heads in the sand and ignore other people's pain. But we also want to be able to manage our own intake and understand our own limits and capabilities in order for us to be able to effectively support and care for others, right? So therapists learn ways to not take things on as much as possible. They are there to support and help, but they are not responsible for saving or changing other people's lives. That's too much for any one person. They learn to balance having empathy for others and knowing their emotional limits and boundaries. And even trained professionals who are familiar with this, they're, they're not immune to being impacted by witnessing stories of trauma and violence over time, right? So as I already mentioned earlier, more and more as I see the collective experiencing vicarious traumatization, because that's what's happening through the constant news cycles of the world's traumas, I believe that everyone can benefit from the same kind of training that therapists receive on how to hold space for others' emotions, offer deep empathy, which includes activating to help when possible, 
also know what is and isn't their responsibility to try to solve and save, and also know how to care for your own nervous system and pace yourself and realize what you even have the control and power to change or fix. So I think that when people get stuck consuming all the news around the world about all the terrible things happening and they can't place a gate on it, that's one form of a trauma response. It's getting stuck in shock and it gives a false sense of control. So it's like, if I can at least be aware of and stay alert to all the dangers and things that are happening, maybe I can maintain safety. And this is something called hypervigilance, where we become overly invested in looking out for danger to try to protect ourselves and others. But it then actually becomes harmful because you can't regulate your nervous system back to safety and recognize personal safety when it is actually present. So I wanted to actually share my personal experience with vicarious traumatization as a therapist because I want to really normalize this for people. So there's times where I have had to take breaks from my work as a therapist or social worker. I've changed jobs when I reached my emotional threshold working with certain populations like emotionally disturbed or traumatized children. Um, I've had to take complete breaks from reading any news or hearing about any traumas happening in the world at times because my own mental health simply was not centered enough to be able to handle it. My partner Mark will attest to the fact that there's times that I can't watch certain kinds of TV shows or movies that contain too much drama or crisis-like intensity because my threshold has already been met through my work, right? And this is normal. This is not a weakness. It's self-awareness and engaging a skill set to ensure that I'm actually in a place to be of any help to the people that I'm working with. So when I see people online shaming others for promoting things like taking breaks or self-care amidst the collective world trauma, it makes me a bit angry because that perspective of no rest until we all rest is not sustainable and it implodes eventually. Monitoring your own mental health needs, your own intake of the news and activism is a form of activism and it's one that will increase positive changes in the long term. So what's needed at these times of collective overwhelm is certainly action where possible. And also, be sure to tend to your own nervous system and focus on getting back to a baseline in order to be able to re-engage with life, work, and helping others where possible. So even if that means helping in different capacities. As I said before, sticking our heads in the sand permanently and disconnecting completely isn't the long-term solution either. So here are seven pieces of advice from a therapist on coping with the traumas of the world. And I'm just going to go through these one at a time. Number one, be mindful of your own threshold or capacity. Know when to pause and move into self-care and your own nervous system regulation. Rest is not a weakness or passivity. Allowing moments of joy is healthy and important in the long game, okay? 
Number two, hire your own therapist or coach if you need to learn a skill set for self-regulating, grounding, and tending to your own emotional state. This is like on the airplanes, put your mask on first before helping others. Part of this is learning to control your attention. This is mindfulness. When you're focused on activism work, do that. When you're home playing with your family, do that fully. When you're resting, do that fully. Let yourself completely unhook and detach when you need to. Number three, always operate in life from a foundation of hope. This may take an act of faith at times to simply choose hope. We cannot predict the future. So focusing on only the catastrophic doomsday predictions is just a guess. Focusing on positive possibility is also just a guess, but it's a more helpful one. This doesn't mean that we don't plan and prepare to an extent for the future. We want to, you know, be mindful of what we might need to look out for, but we don't get stuck perseverating on those worst case scenarios. Hope helps us move forward from a more grounded energy that's going to make us be much more effective at making the changes we want to see. Number four, focus on one to two causes to keep up with where you can impact and work towards positive change there, whether it's volunteering, donating time, money, advocating, taking on more than one or two causes is going to increase your chances of overwhelm. You cannot do everything. Nobody can, right? So do not get stuck in cycles of doom scrolling all the bad news in the world. Focus on the one or two causes that you can make some changes in. It's not healthy or helpful to anyone to get stuck in the doom scrolling of everything at once. Number five, become very aware of what exactly you can control and change immediately. If there is nothing you can do immediately to change something, Grieve, acknowledge the emotions, and allow yourself to shift your attention. As I've said, you cannot solve and control everything at once or sometimes at all. This is a fact, and we only create more misery and suffering when we get stuck spinning our wheels. And I want to just highlight that just choosing one or two causes and letting go of the others or accepting what you can't control, this can trigger guilt. There are many worthy causes demanding our attention now. People may even judge you or be angry with you for not activating for every single cause. But this guilt over basically not being God or goddess, (laughs) not being able to immediately and magically solve all the world's problems, this guilt is not justified or helpful. Ask yourself, what is effective in helping? What actually works to reach the goal? What is possible for you as a single person to do? Some things, yes, do them. Some things, no. Number six, know the difference between pitying or feeling sorry for others versus having compassion and empathy for others. When we pity or feel sorry for others, it robs them of the opportunity for resilience. This is what keeps people in victimhood, both in your mind and the way that you're then interacting with them. There's a power dynamic that starts to happen there. 
Um, And remember earlier when we talked about the importance of not feeling powerless when you're recovering from trauma or disasters, believe in your fellow humans' strengths, capabilities, and resilience no matter what. This doesn't mean they don't need some help. And it's also not your job to save everyone else and bear the weight for them. There's a great chapter in a book called The Soul of Money by Lynn Twist. She is the founder of Hunger Project and she's on a mission to end world hunger. She's this amazing woman. And she talks about this, you know, all the charity efforts and some of the ways that we approach trying to solve problems in the world. And she talks about the importance of collaboration and empowerment rather than this top-down helping or pitying approach. So it's not about offering handouts to the poor others, right? It's actually about offering a hand up and it changes the whole dynamic. Okay, number seven, here's our last one. Don't let the darkness of the world make you forget the light. And don't let the light make you forget the darkness. There is still beauty and wonderful things happening in the world all the time, even while there is so much pain that is also occurring. One does not negate the other. Learning to hold them both at the same time helps us maintain gratitude, hope, and positivity while we also feel fear, sadness, anger, and pain. It's when we polarize into only focusing on the darkness or only focusing blindly on positivity and light that we have and we create more problems. So again, let yourself feel joy in spite of the pain and don't block out and ignore the pain because you only want to feel the lightness. Okay, my friend, that's all I've got for you today. If you ever need support in these areas, don't hesitate to reach out. Send me a DM on Instagram or shoot me an email. We are in this together. Ready to start your mindful soul journey? Sign up for my free life balance workbook linked in the show notes and come hang out with me on my email list. Can't wait to see you there.